it's scary. At first, it's very, very scary to have to know that in order for you to survive, you got to move. You got to move into a different space. You can't be comfortable with sitting by yourself all day long, getting high or drinking in some cases. If you want to live, you got to move. Welcome to the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Our mission is to help veterans and their family members transition from military to civilian life and culture. As best we can, we avoid stigmatizing names and terms. We feature conversations with those who have encountered unexpected reactions in their journey, including nightmares, rage, and isolation. Participants in our segments share experiences that make them uniquely qualified to join the quest to identify, understand, and resolve these enormous life challenges. Stigma-Free Vet Zone is brought to you by the Orban Foundation for Veterans. Learn more by visiting the OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org and donations are always welcome at the OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org slash donate. Thank you for embarking on this educational journey with the Stigma-Free Vet Zone podcast. Here's today's segment. Welcome to another educational edition of the Stigma-Free Vet Zone. We are here on the banks of the Milwaukee River in West Bend, and today traveling down to Milwaukee to catch up with Army veteran Otis Winstead. Otis, welcome to the program. We're so looking forward to uh, continuing our conversation the other day, but welcome to the podcast. And thank you, Mike. It's, it's an honor being here. Yeah, it's an honor to have you. So let, let's get right to it and start out. Uh, tell us, uh, who is who is Otis? Where'd you come from uh, as a boy, your family, brothers and sisters, a dog, a cat, uh, sports, whatever? Yeah. I was raised in a rural area of Pennsylvania, western Pennsylvania, small town, of about, I guess, 5,000, place called Trafford, Pennsylvania, right outside Pittsburgh. Well, actually about 25 miles outside of Pittsburgh. Was raised uh, in a high school where there were 3,500 school students that graduated because we had merged with another another segment of uh, Trafford or Penn Trafford. There were 3,500 students, 12 of us are black. So I grew up in a really space where we had to uh, adapt, we'll say, for lack of a better words, to mainstream society at an early age, which in a way gave me an advantage because my father, who's from North Carolina, my mother's from Alabama, something told him back in the 50s that he didn't need to be in an urban area, he needed to be in a rural area with his family. I think that goes to the education piece and just the way the system works. But um. Wasn't a bad childhood, you know. In in, in reference to, um, we weren't well. We were poor, but we really didn't know it, you know. Uh, like we had our own garden, so that was pretty cool. And uh, the school system I said was, a, I think it was a a triple A or double A school that I went to high school. So that was that. I think it was a good experience. I think the uh, the whole social experience was a little different though, because you know. For me, growing up in a um, place where it was common to see uh, the Confederate flag, you know, which is there. And at that point, you know, we really didn't recognize what it meant. You know, and, and, as, and as I got older, one of my best, best friends, who just died, I guess about four years ago, his father, my father were friends. And we grew up from the outdoor grass, I'm a white guy. His name's Lee. But... I took a picture with Lee recently before he passed away. I went, to, I went back home. I went, he, he would come where I was at and I would go where he's at. And I took a picture and we were like hugging each other like this. And behind in his garage was a Confederate flag. So the, so the joke here in Milwaukee is that people see that picture, they were like, oh, this, what the fuck are you doing? What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> we kind of grew up that way. But um, uh, when I became 17, I, I, yeah, I never, I never will forget my uh, father. He, uh, he never took off work. I mean, never. 
I came home in June. I don't know what day it was. The last day of June, we were being released from school. And uh, when I got there, he's standing in the living room in his uniform. And he says, now, what are you going to do? I mean, there was, there was no conversation prior to that day about what I was going to do. He says, what are you going to do? I says, I don't know. He said, you can't stay here. He says, you want to go in the military? Now, this small town I was in, right, I was like, yeah. He says, okay, your mom's going to take you down to the station. She's going to sign you up, right? And I was 17. You know, well, well, so, let, let me just stop you for a second. That's a great story. When you say he was in a uniform, was he in a uniform himself? No, no, he was, no, he was in a, his work uniform. Oh, his work uniform. I got you. Yeah, yeah. He, usually, he, usually get off, he usually wouldn't get home at about 3.30. But that day, he was home at 3 o'clock. Uh, waiting for you. <laughs> waiting for you with a decision you were going to make. And you just didn't know it. <laughs> so yeah. now, now at, at that time, or just quickly, uh, did you have brothers and sisters, other people in the house that were besides had, your, your dad and your mom? I had seven brothers and sisters. Ironically, I have two twin brothers. Both of them retired after 20 years. From the military. The military. One was in the Navy and one was in the Army. And they both retired. You know, and, and, uh, and these are older brothers or younger? Younger brothers. Younger brothers. So they, they yeah. had nothing to do with the influence of your dad putting you in the military. Well, I think I, I think they saw that, right? And they were like, I'm going to the military, too. And they went in right after high school. You know, just about the family make, make up a little bit. Um, I have two twin brothers. I think they're 60. I'm 63, so I think they're 60 one this year together um twins they both went in around the same time and did their 20 years the one uh, brother he uh was in the first invasion of iraq right suffered from severe uh, ptsd even to this day he's just now starting to be able to communicate in a way that is consistent i'll say that's um that's, uh, uh, in my opinion, is um, um, coherent. You know, he's 100 percenter, you know. The other brother, he got 20 years in the military and uh, retired, and he's doing fine. He's a minister today. He's a minister um, so, today. Yeah, 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 he's a pastor. Just out of curiosity, what were their MOSs in the military? That's that's a good question, and I'm not going to fake like I know what they are. Okay, well, let, let's fake this part and say, was your brother, who was a minister today, a chaplain? In no, the, oh, no, okay. no, no, okay. He didn't get the calling until uh, later on. My one who has severe PTSD, he worked on the Persian missiles in uh, Oklahoma. Ray, th their names are Ray and Roy. <laughs> so, you know, R Ray worked on the R&R. Yeah, &R. What he did, I, don't, I, I couldn't tell you. Going into the military, you know, because I, th I think what happens to me, what happened to me, I think it happens to a lot of other veterans. Before going into the military, we've experienced some trauma. You know, I, I can speak to myself directly. I speak to other veterans as I speak to them every day. When you start drilling down, pulling back on the onion, you start to see there was something here before you even got in the military. So that said, when I got in the military, I flew out to California. And Sergeant Dancy, the drill sergeant, right? He got off the bus, he went in the barracks, and he had a profound effect on me. <laughs> big, big guy, right? You know, he, uh, you know, you get a lot of, see, my experience in the military was really good. You know, I mean, I don't have any, I mean, basically, I, they kind of picked up what my father took off as far as structure and discipline and that kind of thing. And even to this day, I say, that was the best decision my father made for me. You know, going to the military, that was the best, that was one of the best things I ever did, you know, you know, um, but um, I um, was, was an administrator, so, um, and I was attached to a battalion unit, the second of the eighth battalion unit. And, you know, I rode around with um, the Colonel, you know, in his chopper, his helicopter, like to um, Fort Roberts, to different places where they were doing the drills at, you know. You know, somewhere along the line, I've had some experiences that probably are con con considered traumatic inside, neither in the military or out of the military for that matter, but they happened to be in the military. I mentioned before in our pre-interview that I suffered from schizophrenia. So back then, I think even in the 70s, 
they weren't even sure about PTSD because it was called shell shock. And uh, schizophrenia was just, okay, just give them that, right? Although um, over the years, I've studied a lot about my own uh, mental illness. And now it's, now it's been, it's been um, through my claims, it's been changed to PTSD, you know. But there is some validity or credence to um, schizophrenia because I've read about it and I did it because, you know, some things you can't hide. I did, uh, I feel, uh, um, was symptomatic of it. You know, the voices, which is real prevalent even to this day, but I'm able to filter better today. In other words, I'm, I'm able to uh, filter what I'm hearing on the outside and what I'm hearing on the inside. And that has to do with practice. It also has to do with having people around me that I can trust. You know, you, you gotta kind of remember that even with PTSD, you kind of, you know, you gotta, you, the thing is this, you really don't know what you're going through at the time. You know, Bob Curry, and I'm just gonna allude to this, uh, the president and founder of Dry Hooch used to always say this to me and I understood it. He said, Otis, he said, my wife, and everybody would say, you need to go to the hospital. And he would say, Otis, I got my 10 fingers and I got my 10 toes. Why do I need to go to the hospital? I would tell him, right? Because he was operating out of the same space we all do when we get out of the military. There's nothing wrong with me, you know? <laughs> you know? But um, so, I, so I operated out of that space too for a long time. Um, and it was always somebody else's fault. It was always they couldn't see things my way or uh, whatever the case may be. I never could turn it around and take a look at it. And at some point I had to. I had um, experimented with drugs. And I hadn't been with drugs prior, like high school and all that. No marijuana, very little drinking, that kind of stuff in the military. Some drinking, you know, wasn't a major thing, but, but, uh, but some drinking. Uh, and, uh, let, let's go back for just a, a little bit. Uh, you haven't told us when you left the military, how you left the military, but w w one of the things, and you can only do that very quickly, but w one of the things that you're mentioning, when you're in the military and you, you're, you're not knowing what these reactions are you're having, do you think it's fair to say that we hide them for two reasons? One, we don't understand what's wrong with us to begin with. And number two, we don't want anybody to know there's something wrong with us and we don't know how to explain it. So we're, we're denying it ourselves because we're, we don't know what it is, but we also don't want anybody to find out. Is, is that part? I think you hit it? I think you hit it right on the nails, which keeps us still in that space of not getting any help. You know, we don't know. I didn't know what was wrong. They, I, I went to the chaplain. They sent me to the chaplain. They sent me to um, to see a psychiatrist, right? And they would ask me, well, what are you here for? You know, it's difficult to explain that I hear things. It was difficult to explain that the TV talks to me. It was difficult to explain that people across the street, you know, I can remember being in the chapel, people, I can look out the window and see people in the, in the, in the uh, in the parking lot, this is when I was in the military getting out. They are talking about me. That's a difficult, difficult piece to explain to somebody. <laughs> you know? So, yeah. you know? so, so we're, what we're really talking about is another type of stigma, a very strong one. Yeah. Right, 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 right. You didn't know. You didn't know. I mean, you knew that um, there was going to be some repercussions behind you saying it, right? <laughs> and, um, you know, we've come so far, but back then, I, there's no way in the world I want to disclose this. So you just stayed sick, and I stayed sick. They let me out, right? I shouldn't say like I am got discharged um, a little bit before my original ETS date, right? E um, ETS date, just for for the for the audience. ETS, what is that? Uh, well, that's the date of my discharge date. Yeah, I forget what exactly what that means. That I had one to a, a, a well, yeah, termination or uh, something, termination of service. Anyway, go on. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. It was cool. They gave me the arm one, everything. Everything was cool, right? But they didn't give me the medical or nothing like that. It just says, Otis, you know, you're good, God, blah, blah, you have some problems, can't deal with this, right? We'll let you go. Uh, and still had real, real, still had um, reenlistment status. When I got out now, okay, when I got out, yeah, I was kind of happy to be out. I mean, my parents were happy. And the reason they were happy was Vietnam was still going. 
And they kept asking me, you need to get out, you need to get out, you need to, I mean, they were like really ecstatic. You need to get out of here. Especially my mother, she was like, yeah, I'm fit, right? <laughs> All mothers are there. The, that love of a mother just doesn't go away. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so um, I got out, right? And, um, but the symptoms continued. I mean, literally, I wasn't smoking, I wasn't drinking, I was just trying to figure it out because they, my parents asked me, are you getting high, are you drinking or anything? No, 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 no. But if, if, but if you're in a situation where every word that comes out of somebody's mouth is related to you in a very negative way, as, as, as opposed to really seeing yourself this way, and it's a reflection of what schizophrenia does. Schizophrenia you know, is defined as a fragile mind or split mind. But our processing is so different from um, from everybody else's. No, I mean we don't have to really get into that disease because it's that's a whole conversation within itself. Um, so for a long time, you know, people go from usually marijuana, I guess, to pills or cocaine or whatever. Not Otis. I went straight to mainliner. I, I, I want to stop just for a second, Otis. I'm sorry to interrupt, but you, you, we have had a, a conversation before today. And, and one of the things that was interesting to me is what did your parents tell you to do? You weren't taking, you weren't smoking pot. You weren't doing drugs. They told you to go in the basement and do what? Just cry. Just like me, I go in the basement and just open up, you know, just let stuff out, right? We always have to remember, but this was in the mid 70s. Yes, absolutely. You know, and people weren't aware, you know? I mean, in the black community, Back then, it still is pretty stigmatized that you have someone in the home that, quote unquote, is a little tilted, we'll say. <laughs> you kind of got to keep them in the background a little bit. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's the truth. Um, yeah. It's still today. Today. You know, because you'll, you'll get words like, she's touched or he's touched. Those are the words that you get, right? Um, I've, uh, in the last 20 years, so particularly in the last 11, 10 years, I've worked directly with a veteran community along with the, the community at large being more open about illness itself, uh, regardless what uh, diagnosis you have. Uh, you know, and, it, it, you know, it's all over the place now where um, it's not something to be proud of, but it definitely is something to uh, be shameful about. It's not like you made a choice. And I always say this, mental health or mental uh, uh, illness is something that is different. You didn't have a choice in that matter. It's just kind of like whether it's the genetics or, and that's what I like to think, I've done some research, that it's there and that you had nothing to do with that. So why should you be stigmatized for it? You know, in a way, you know, it's kind of like if you're doing drugs and alcohol, well, you know, you kind of have a choice in that matter, in a way, in a way. I, but I can talk about that too. But in this, in this instance, you don't have, a, you don't have a choice. This isn't something that you wanted to grow up and be. Whether it's schizophrenic, whether it's bipolar, whether it's having PTSD or depression, this isn't something that we look forward to. So why should we be stigmatized for it? But I think society's come a long way in that area. But I myself. Um, well, let's jump ahead now. You say, and I interrupted at a bad time. You, you, you didn't, uh, you didn't smoke pot. You didn't do the light drugs. You went right to mainlining. So, right, 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 take, right to mainlining. Right take us back to mainlining. So when I got started, I was back home. My mother died in 1979. I got out into 1976. So that was like three years. Okay. And I always say this. I used to use it as my excuse. She died December 1979. I was going through it for those two or three years. I, I was able to function work at different times. But when she died, I was like, oh, this is it. You know, I mean, subconsciously. And I think in January, I was introduced to heroin by uh, an associate that um, owed me some money and said, Otis. Um, you want to get a couple of these bundles, which are packages of heroin instead of the uh, money, and you can sell it. Well, that day, that day that um, I smile about it now, but it's a very serious matter. That day that he uh, gave me that bundle, his brother, who's also dealing, um, tied my arm up. You know, he just tied my arm up, right? 
and um, they hit me. It's called a hit. And I never looked back for like 30 years. I never looked back. After that, it was over, you know. So it took care of some things. I think about it. All the um, whispering and all that stuff that was going on the side of my head. You know, schizophrenia is like having, it's like having, a, it's like it's like doing a juggling act in your head, a juggling act in your head. You got balls just moving, everything's moving, everything's moving constantly. Well, here it would just stop all that automatically. It just stopped it. You know, it wasn't that um, you could think any clear. You didn't have to think at all. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so that was so that was that was important. And uh, I kind of stayed on it until um, I want to say uh, my journey of recovery started in nineteen. 19- 96. But, but how it. desperate does that dependence on it get? Especially, I've never heard anybody who got that type of relief from, from strong drugs. I mean, my family's got a history of drugs. My brother's dead of suicide uh, resulting from drugs. Uh, uh, brothers and sisters uh, went through detox many times. But you're referring to something that took these voices out of your head, that stopped all of this. So did you have to stay on this 24 hours a day, seven days a week? I mean, you, you must, the addiction had to be severe. Yeah, yeah, so making that connection that, you know, I need to get high and know why I need to get high because, you know, there's some consequences to uh, being an addict. There's a lot of consequences, but one of the consequences is if you don't have it, you get physically sick, you know? So there were periods Whenever I'd be locked up, there were periods when I really, you know, I've probably been through 15 or 20 rehabs in my lifetime, you know, so you go into a rehab, right? Oh, and I've also been on everything from Thorazine to Haldol, which is a terrible drug. Haldol, that drug, I mean, it's- What what is that for? It's called Haldol. It's for um, schizophrenia, but other mental illnesses too. And, and they got some new ones now, like parazidone and all that kind of stuff. Well, there, there, there's, other, there's other drugs. For me, using the medications, I understood, yeah, everything would go away. And I would be doing the shuffle. You Are you familiar with the shuffle? You've seen them shuffling around? People on medications. Oh, I've seen it in, in hospitals where the- where, Right, right. <laughs> okay. Okay. You've seen it, okay? Yeah. So I was the guy who had this big beard, right? Always, always had a bike, like a motorcycle, right? And I was the guy who had the big beard, slobbering, right? About 300 pounds, right? About far from that now, again. But anyway, I'm not using But anyway, because <laughs> I'm eating. And um, I didn't like that. I couldn't think. But I, I couldn't think. I didn't think about anything. But I couldn't think about anything. I couldn't put two, two sentences together. What I chose to do was to find out about psychotherapy, which is why I'm here today. This ain't about you or the people. This is about Otis still getting well, this conversation, you know? And you have to own it. You got to get out there in it, you know, because I can't save my ass and my face at the same time. And maybe through this, somebody else will say, you know what? I kind of experienced that too. You know, and if it's okay for this one guy to do it, maybe I need to get out there and talk to somebody too. You know, so that, that is actually the mission of the podcast for every yeah. the importance of every voice that comes on that might find even if it's just that one person in the audience who needs the hope of hearing that somebody else has been through what they've been through. Uh, yeah. Two of the things I wanted to ask you, one thing, but in two places, when you were suffering with the schizophrenia and went home, uh, you must have done a humongous job of hiding that from your parents and from the world. But now you get the main line, now you're on heroin, you must have spent an enormous amount of energy hiding that, not yeah. letting anybody know about that. On my family side, you gotta remember, my mother died in 1979, 79. okay? I didn't start using heroin until, 19, until January of 1980. I mean, it was just boom, it was done. My father, he died in 1983, November of 1983. So they didn't witness this. My father was in a nursing home. Yeah, he didn't know. He, he was a very old gentleman, you know, when he died. He had been in a nursing home or whatnot for a while after his wife died. They say he died from a bro- broken heart because she died. So no, they didn't know. They didn't know. You know, there was stigma in my family. I mean, I didn't, you know, when you're an addict, you know, um, at least in my opinion, 
you don't really hang out with your family too much. Yeah, that's what I mean. You're hiding it from them. You're, yeah, yeah, yeah. What about income? How did you afford this for 30 years? Just getting by. So, yeah, well, you know, I'll tell you what. Um, back in 1996 and whatnot, um, I've done so many different things to... Um, to, you know, keep my habit going. You should, know, should we just go with the obvious that many, many drug users Just the obvious. What do you think I yeah. did? <laughs> okay. Whatever was necessary, right? Whatever. You got it done. <laughs> yeah. You know, in 1987, I went to uh, the VA hospital in um, Pittsburgh. Dr. Gertz. Dr. Gertless, I never forget this guy. I keep trying to find him, but I can't find him <laughs> because I mean, because he was one of the first doctors who really uh, took the time to try to explain about schizophrenia and uh, was diagnosed with him and did a lot of sessions with him too. I um, I got out of prison, you know, you, like you're doing like, a, I was doing like a three to 15 year thing and I was in and out. Three, to, three on the minimum, 15 on the max. I did nine. So, so it wasn't like, it wasn't like I was out a lot, but, not, but when I was out, you know, I'd go up and talk to Dr. Gerdless. And I said, today, I'm trying to figure out where he's at. Because he was a young guy, and so was I. He was older than me, but he was a, he was a younger guy. And he would always, you know, kind of like, he did the best he could. When I look back on it, you know, um, he experimented with different drugs with me, right? From um, Thorazine to Haldol to Peresidone and whatnot, right? Really compassionate guy. You know, that's kind of what I remember about him, you know, um, being in the VA with him, you know, and uh, they would always, I've been to that VA in Pittsburgh maybe three times in their rehab, in their rehab spot, you know, their program. He was just, a, he was the guy who turned me on to, oh, this is what it is. Read about this shit if you need to just read about it so you see what you got, right? And it was so thankful because today I talked to a lot of folks who have those same symptoms I'm able to talk about lived experience and, and how going through that tunnel, you don't have to go through it by yourself. Oh man, you don't know some of the people, I've, some of the vets I've talked to. Is that right, Otis? Yeah, I've been through, I'm hearing, yeah, I know, I've done that too. And you're able to um, to connect in that way and let them know it ain't gonna stop. I mean, let them know it doesn't end there. You know, one of the biggest things that people don't misunderstand about schizophrenians, and I'm gonna use that because I believe, although I, the diagnosis has changed, and I've talked to enough people who suffer from this disease, that we have a lot in common. And one of the biggest things, I, I, I used to do seminars across, I, I did the first, uh, I did the first uh, Schizophrenia Anonymous group here in, in um, actually in the state of Wisconsin. You know, and I carried that group for about a couple of years, right? But what I would tell people was this, it's just like a person who loses his sight or loses his sight. They hear better, like Ray Charles, for example. It's the same thing. And people say, what are you talking about? In our, if we're focused, if we can understand that we need to get focused, and if we focus as schizophrenians, you know, there, um, yes, yes, there's, there's something's been taken away, you know, in a sense, you know, um, from our capacity to reason. And that's what it comes down to. But God in our bodies compensates if we can understand how we focus and we can become very, very good at one thing. And that's why I do peer support. <laughs> you know, it's just one thing I do, you know, you know, yeah, I've, if you want to characterize it that way, I, I think there's a lot more that you do to it than that. And I've known you for a long time. I know I know Dry Hooch and I know the work you do. If you want to character that, characterize it that way, but we could make it much, much more um, reasonable to say that you've been there and you know the pain of it. So helping these people is like helping yourself. So in healing others is healing in you too. So, But at the same time, getting out of the isolation of just being internalized about you is a painful thing and a huge step to get out and say, I can help these other people too. So, well, you, know what, uh, you know, something, you know, I'm so glad that you're uh, narrating this or, or because I missed it. I, I missed this really important part. It's scary. At first, it's very, very scary to have to know that in order for you to survive, you got to move. 
You got to move into a different space. You can't be comfortable with sitting by yourself all day long, getting high or drinking in some cases. If you want to live, you got to move. But that's that's like, what? You have to consciously say, what? Come out of my comfort zone? Yeah. But, but here, here's one of the important parts of your experience, Otis, that, that's really educational. If we, if we go back, you said that you went through detox, you're not sure, 10, 20 times, whatever that was. Yeah. Uh, and, and of course, you know, with the, the, the prison, but, but these detoxes, these weren't by choice. I'm guessing these were somebody said you need to get into uh, detox. Uh, You need to get into prison. These are all things. But the decision you're making now is an internal decision. I need to take some responsibility. I need to put the effort in. I need to take control. I need to change. And is that a critical step? Where it's not somebody else saying, "Okay, Otis, you better get you know get, get your stuff together here, you know, straighten out." But if you're not ready to straighten out, you're not going to. And, and people can they can put you in prison for the rest of your life. But if you're not ready to say, "I want to do this," you're in trouble. Right. You know, because you know you hit it on the nail here again. Um, it's kind of like has anybody ever told you? Maybe not you, but people have told me, "Oh, Otis, you know, you do such a good job." Or Otis, not in the recent years, but I still struggle with this a little bit. But uh, they said, uh, oh, you're so good at that. Or you're a really nice guy. Or just but if I ain't believing that shit, it don't make no difference. <laughs> you know what I mean? You so know what's right. really inside. Huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But if I'm not believing it, right? Yeah. What difference does it make somebody's telling me that, you know? So you're right. The light bulb has to go in from the inside. And that's what happens, you know? For me, that, that that's what happened. It was like, again, if someone's saying that to you, and you're not grabbing it, you're not gonna be able to grab it. But if you're saying it to yourself, it's a very slow process. The transition into um, self-image or self-awareness, oh, that's a very slow process because it's so easy to fall back in. You know, so easy to say, well, you know, my 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 record I haven't played in a while is well, my father said I wasn't gonna do anything anyway. So it's easier to fall back in. You couple that with a mental illness, right? You got no reason to come out. Let me just get high and drink all day long and just hang out when the case may be. Isolation became a way of life. And today, I promise you, Mike, that I may not get up every day feeling like I gotta go, but I promise you, Mike, just like I gotta eat, I gotta get up and get outside. I gotta get up, get up and leave, you know, no matter what's going on. Those first two hours that I get up in the morning, at some point, within two hours, I got to be on the outside. And I mean, literally on the outside of my house, you know, I can come back in, but I really have to get out and, and start to um, start to uh, 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 circulate through the, through the community. And I oh, think almost, it's almost like a ceremony that to get you started, to keep <laughs> yeah. you on the straight and narrow, here's my ceremony. I'm walking out that back door and I'll come back in in 10 minutes. But if I don't do that, I'm going to be in front of the TV eating pizza and smoking yeah. cigarettes all day. Yeah. That's right. That's so, right. So, so tell us about this confrontation, or, or not the confrontation, but taking that initial step. How is that? How important is that? Like, for example, you mentioned you're going to see this doctor in in Pittsburgh or outside of Pittsburgh at the VA. Yeah. How important yeah. is that? Is that step, and how much would you encourage people, no matter how frightening, no matter how scary, no matter how absurd it sounds? How important that first step not only is, but how hopeful it is on the other side. You know, going through it right now, I mean, looking at it, I was like 1987, like 30, 40 years ago or something. Look at it now, that's where, yeah, that's where it began at. I mean, in terms of having a clinician or a doctor talk to me about mental illness. If I remember correctly, I was like, yeah, okay, you don't know what you're talking about in my mind. <laughs> you know, I was like, let me get through this session and get the hell on up out of here. But, uh, I know that today that those sessions, those seeds being planted, um, the way I live today are a part of a, a part of a di- direct result of me doing what I'm doing. Because Dr. Gertless, a lot of this stuff, he kind of instilled in me, he kind of taught me, he kind of showed me what I needed to do. You know, the only the only thing back then, and this still prevalent, is the medications. The medications were so devastating for me. And that I'm walking around doing the shuffle. You know, at one point I had gotten out and I um you see those fellas that walk around 
with these carts and everything they own is inside the cart. Every yeah. damn thing yeah. they own is, I was that guy walking around with that cart, right? And I'd be pushing that cart and everything I own was inside the cart. And even today, when I see veterans on the street, you know, because we live dry hooch, we were way under the, under the um, microscope or we were, we were, we were way below the normal line. In other words, our people are up under here, up under the table somewhere. Nobody ever even sees them. Nobody talks to them. You got all these fucking programs going on. But is anybody really looking at that population of veterans? And when you get down to that population of veterans, it don't even matter what color you are. They don't even, nobody cares. Just, can I get some help? You know? That's what it, but again, that's a population that's never even looked at. I, I go to, I've seen those meetings and different things that, that people participate here. Great stuff. But I never hear talking about Jim Blast from, he's living up, he's down by the fucking lake. Where's that guy? We never talk about that guy. You know, now, don't misunderstand me. Great program, great resource. Me and the general used to talk all the time, Grokoff. He said, oh, come on up and talk to me. What are you guys doing down there? What's going on? Do, can there's something that we can do to get you, you, you peer guys to get you more resources? That's the way he talked to me. And he would call me up to his office and say, I know you're on the ground. What's going on? Me, Bobby Bransky, uh, Michael Crawford, all of us. But he called me and talked. That doesn't go on anymore. And those guys are still under that bridge. So, that, so this is what Trilucha does. I mean, and I hate Bob, <laughs> Bob Curry. He's a trip, right? He's, he's, he's something. But, you know, um, he really gets it. People don't understand he, how, how much he gets it. He says, stay the focus. Don't worry about it. Just go get those guys and bring them up to these places where they can get some resources. I, I agree with you. And, and I, <laughs> if we could just stop for a moment and, and just go back to something you said, and that's uh, a lot of us, and I have had the shuffle. I, I went through inpatient treatment for PTSD uh, for, for many months, and they had me on olanzapine, mirtazapine, Paxil, all at the same time, and never asked me if I drank. Uh, you, you know, so you, you're putting alcohol on top of these things. I know that shuffle, and it was yeah. that shuffle. It was that thing, in, that zombie in your mind with your hands hanging at your side and not even moving. You say, I'm, I'm not doing it. I'll die first, but I'm getting off of this crap. I'm not going to be on this right. medicine. But back to the other point that you make, and I think this is important, and again, something I think we can help the mental health profession with is – I never went to seminars. I never went to workshops. I never went to anywhere where the public was having any kind of display that would have been on these topics uh, because I was hiding from it. I didn't want to see it. So I was one of the guys isolating in many ways. But you go to some of these meetings and, and they're separated where the intellectuals, the mental health professionals are there, and they're reviewing the pie chart, the graph, the percentages, and all these things. And he, I'm not a pie chart. I'm not a percentage. I'm not a graph. I'm a human being. So as soon as they start all of this, I have no trust in their conversations, no belief in their conversations, so I stay away from them. So uh, the other thing would be that when I go to the functions that are primarily led by veterans, I very seldom see the mental health profession there. So it's like these two parallel trips of the veterans who are trying to, to transition, the mental health profession who's trying to transition, but because they don't truly understand and it, it, they're trying to figure this out intellectually and scholastically with graphs. This is how many people suffer from PTSD. Well, you know, if you say you know, 10% of all veterans have PTSD, well, now I'm a failure. I'm one of the, the small percent that have it. So why should I tell anybody? You know, I, I, I'm just going to be showing that I didn't uphold my responsibilities as a soldier or a man. So they create a lot of the stigmas and, and a lot of the distance between us. So I just wanted to make that point that I think what you're saying is very, very strong, where when you get to the peer mentors, when you get to the people who have had the common experience, it's that one element of trust and that trust is that I believe that you're listening to me because you've been there and you understand. And I don't know how many veterans I've spoken to, including myself, who have gone years with the same counselor, knowing they were never going to tell them the real story of what's going on. You know what? And I hate, you know, I, I like listening to you sometimes. Sometimes. <laughs> Let me just say this. You're so right because um, <laughs> I, w I, w I would like you to tell me the times you don't like listening to <laughs> This is a good conversation because I want to add to this right here. I know practically every clinician at the VA hospital in Aurora Hospital, veteran clinicians and administrators, a lot of them who are players in this whole piece, right? 
before I say this, that's why what you're saying is exactly why you still got these damn guys and girls up under bridges, homeless um, sofa surfing, because they don't trust. They don't trust that they're going to get the kind of care that they believe they deserve. Now, I'm here to tell you that I know quite a few of them. Dr. Berger, outstanding guy. Dr. McBride, another somebody I had to talk to or cry to a few times myself. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and there's a host of them. The thing is, and you said it, Mike, they're dealing with the graphs. Not Dr. Berger so much. I mean, I mean, not Dr. I mean, Brian, but the, the Berger stuff, the uh, suicide prevention, great stuff. Great, great stuff. But like you said, there's some graphs here. The guy who's going to commit suicide, a part of a part of that demographic is that you're never going to know him because we're not really reaching him. You know, we're not really reaching that guy. And it's okay to have your grasp and say this percentage and that percentage. But really, when are we going to sit in a group and talk about Frank or Joe or Sally? Yeah. We never do that. Yeah. We're just going to put this together over here. And we're going to put this together over here. And throw some money at it. Throw some yeah. money at it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But let me be very clear. And I've told this to many people. The, the hospital at Toma, the inpatient treatment center there, saved my life because I was suicidal at the time. And they had a woman there named uh, Deb Pergandy, who now works for the Marshfield Clinic, uh, doing crisis intervention on the street with veterans in about 29 different counties. Uh, I'm, I'm, not, <clears throat> I'm not stating this about the VA. I'm stating this more about mental health professionals. Because, right. But it, uh, aside from that, I do not want to start a confrontation with the mental health profession because now, we're, now we've, we're just taking the whole topic and shifting it over to a battle between the veterans and the mental health profession. What I'm saying is I think it is imperative that the veterans, as you're doing, Otis, take part in improving the health care that we are going to receive by participating, as you are, in the peer mentors I don't think we can do it alone as peer mentors, and I don't think the mental health profession can do it alone as mental health profession. But, but together, know, we're going to solve this, and, that, and that's know, where we're getting to. You know something that's you know something. Um, still like you, you still like talking to me, or is that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm start calling you Doctor Mike, Doctor Orban. You got to get So that's it, and you hit it on the nose. I, I love, I absolutely love the facility. I love the mental health professionals for me right. over that VA or any VA for me because they've shown me, right, the capacity to understand and learn from my own experiences. You know, and I'm talking about right there on 5,000 National Avenue. I don't know that I've ever had a bad experience in there. I don't know that I've never had been serviced correctly inside there because it's always been good. I'm speaking for the guys in some of the bridges and the girls that are in these halfway houses and that. When do they? I get a chance to speak. I get a chance to speak for whatever reason, right? Some of them all oh, just come to the meeting, right? You need you're involved in this, right? But what about those folks? When do they actually get the opportunity also to do what you're talking about to help bridge the gap? I'm just one person, so maybe you should maybe. The idea is to have folks suffering in that space talk to or have a Zoom meeting or have a meeting with the clinicians themselves so they can see it, they can feel it, they can understand it better, you know? What, because, what, what, what you could do by inviting these clinicians to dry hooch. A good, yeah, yeah that, 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 that might be the... I never thought of it like that. I thought that we would be invited to there. Yeah. Maybe yes, maybe no, we'll but invite, invite them under the bridge where they're going to be uncomfortable and have to learn. Rather, you know, take them. Oh, nice, nice, nice. Guys. But yeah. here, Otis, I, I want to, uh, to uh, give you the opportunity because we got about 15 minutes left. Take us now to Dry Hooch and, and explain some of the, the dynamics of how Dry Hooch works. And uh, we had another conversation or part of our earlier conversation in the week was very fascinating. And you talk about the African-American veteran community and their, uh, I'm not even sure what the, word, the adjective would be to want to come in to get help or to ask for help. Uh, speak to that a little bit more. You, you, you mentioned um, that. Yeah. So before I get right to the African American, okay. let me talk about uh, the mission, Bob Curry's mission. Okay. okay. Go, go ahead. His own, this is his conception. And it came out of the fact that he came back. Everybody knows he came back from Vietnam. 
suffered from PTSD back then. It was called shell shock, got into an accident. Guy passes away. And then he realizes once he kind of gets through that whole journey that all that's left for him to do is to help other veterans suffering or coming through or coming through and using, um, he uses himself as a battle buddy. Somebody has been there, you're coming through, I can help you transition. Bottom line for the mission, right? So today people will say, oh, there's a bunch of confused people over there. Oh, we are, but we wouldn't have it any other way. See, we wouldn't have it any other damn way. That's where it's gotta be. You gotta be taking people off the street, not taking them. They gotta be coming there just for a cup of coffee and hanging out. That's the start. And then eventually, you know, maybe they're talking to me or they're talking about other veteran peers over there, depending. And then that's where the work begins. But it's supposed to be confusing at dry hooch. How else can it be? It ain't like we're sitting up in the in the hospital someday, you got to act a certain way and do a certain thing. You know, I, I would like to add this to, the, to that point, Otis, and, and that's tell me what we went through in war or, or with uh, the, the experiences you've had with schizophrenia. Uh, tell me that you're not going to come out of that with, with confusion and anger and rage and all these other emotions. Show me a person that's been through what you have or any of us yeah. who have been in, and, and we're supposed to come home and just be real nice, gentle little pixies. Uh, and that it's, right. we, we are confused. That's why we're, we're looking to get answers. Uh, yes, sir. So you're making a good point. So now when we talk about uh, people of color, so I don't want to talk directly about Africa. Well, no, I, 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 let me take that back. You didn't talk about uh, African-Americans. You spoke about African-Americans, Latinos, people in general coming to the dry hooch and the importance of that because sometimes some of the different uh, groups don't feel either welcome or aren't aware that they're there. Make those points that the dry yeah. hooch is a communal place where if you were in the military, that's all that's there. I mean, you that know, that's the qualification. And and certainly right. if you weren't in the military, you'd still let somebody have a cup of coffee. One of the biggest things that Bob advocated for, he didn't just advocate for it, he actually did it. Two years ago, three years ago, they did a ceremony of immigration where they had, the, like, there were like uh, 215 people were being naturalized, were getting, their, getting their, their citizenship down at um, this theater downtown. So Bob, they asked Bob to do the ceremony down there, right? And I was flabbergasted. I see a lot of Vietnam vets down there, a lot of vets down there, but I seen all those people, all those immigrants being citizens. They, they, they were becoming citizens, right? And Bob had to do the keynote, right? So when I looked at that, I got a better picture of what he was doing, where he was really at, right? Yeah. And I just followed it, which was only the right thing to do. So today, yeah, today we are, I am vested. I am vested in um, recruiting peer support people in all ethnic groups. Today we have, you know, Asians, we have Spanish folks, we have Native Americans that we're working with, right? These are actually peers in the community that work at Dry Hooch. You know, I think it makes a difference. I think it makes a difference. It makes a difference in the sense that if I'm African American and I see quote unquote, this is what we talk, I see a brother Hey, bro, what's up? What you doing, right? I'm assuming that, that every other group kind of looks at it the same way in that respect. Now, this is where the melting pot comes in because we can sit at the round table, all of us have done this with dry hooch employees. I got a guy who lives in Montana, right? White guy. Great guy. I mean, this guy is everything. To me, he's just an epitome of a good soldier, a good, a good human being. You know what he told me? He said, Otis, I want to tell you something. He said, I never dealt with any black people until I went into the service. I mean, what the fuck? <laughs> you know? So his whole thing had to change. And it changed because I see him peer supporting Muslim um, um, veterans. I see him peer supporting Asian veterans. I mean, he, he, he just went out and really wanted to explore. But he was from a place, not place, well, geographically maybe, where he just wasn't, wasn't exposed. And once, and then he had a he had kind of a stereotypical way of looking at things. He's a veteran, and he was a um, a grunt for a lack of a better word. And uh, he came to Dry Hooch, and he was having some problems, and he got involved. And he began. One time, he told me, you know, a long time, it's been a while. He said, I, was like, "I couldn't stand you." He said, "I couldn't stand you when I came here." I said, "What are you talking about?" 
you're a fucking black guy. What the fuck? Since who put you in charge? Did he really? Now that's the way he's talking to me, right? He says, he says, but he says to me, you know, I got to know you, man. He says, you know, that's what it took. You know, it's no, it's no, um, uh, humble. You say that because see, he's learning. He's learning that you can't wipe everything with the same brush, right? Everything, you know what I mean? He learned that. And then I see him, you know, I see him and then he understands it now. He, he does. That's what you gotta have. You, you have to have that in there. You do, and I think it's important. And it, for for the same reasoning, Otis, that that's why it's important for every culture, every religion to to be represented by the work we do as veterans and peers, because right. there's that there's that added part that that is very intimate to the individual, and it's not going to go away. And and I explained it this way. Often, I have five sisters. If you want to know what it's like to be pregnant and give birth to a child, don't ask a male gynecologist. Ask a woman who's been pregnant and given birth to a child. And so the, yeah. the closer you are to the experience, the more you have to offer. And, 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 and I think that's just intuitive. But we also spoke about something the other day that I think is really important. It's really, we're talking about the wounds of the soul, of the spirit, of the person inside. That's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with the person that 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 soul that that want to live that desire to be alive that will to live you know that integrity of the soul and the spirit that's where we're getting it when you, when you get into yeah. those boundaries you're in that's when you're in the healing zone you know there's two things i just want to i want to comment it, but hold that point because i may forget it because this is very good so i'm going through this right now with dry hook you guys the point you're making now what i found out was i'm always talking about well, there's no majority, there's no minorities in the room here. I'll go there. I mean, I'll say it to myself, I'm not coming back to this. This is not really not gonna listen to me anyway. But what I found out, and I kind of knew it, was that when they were in the room, when there were um, um different folks of different ethnic groups in the room, there was never any points that were made that were any different. <laughs> they always had the same fucking points anyway. Yeah. But it was important for them to be there. Yeah. In other words, it didn't matter. It didn't matter. It didn't matter that um, the points were going to be made and the points were going to be made as a collective. And they were all going to be on the same, pretty much on the same, on the same uh, agenda or, 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 or the, they were all making the same argument. It was just the idea that people wanted to be at the table. That was really what it really came with veteran stuff. It yeah. really came down. To you that. want to heal inside. You you know you want you want that yeah. inside yeah. to be healthy and, and to get past yeah. the nightmares and the rage. We're running a little a little bit behind. I, I wish we. I am going to invite you back for another hour, but we still have yeah. one other part of dry hooch to talk about, and that's the the veterans legal system program that you've started. Oh yeah. Um, could you share a little bit about that? Because a lot of us have got, been through legal problems as veterans, and just a, a little bit of a touch on that, because we are going to be speaking with Judge uh, Chavez on this too, and uh, he's part of the program that you're working with. So, if I would yeah. be quiet, I'll let you start and say something about that part. Yeah, that was that was kind of awesome in itself, and amazing, and everything you know for me. And as for Dry Hooch, Bob, it was like amazing because they came uh, in spite of a lot of things. Uh, the VA. And the medical college, in my book, are some of the two really great institutions. You know, really, I have to applaud them both because I know they're always there. But anyway, so uh, the medical college comes and they say, listen, Otis, uh, Judge Chavez wants to do some city hearings, right? Municipal hearings down at Dry Hooch. And it was off to the races, you know? So he comes in, now he's coming in right now. I think he was here, I guess, a month ago. He'll be here. At Dry Hooch or National Avenue. Um, I think it's at April 22nd or something. Yeah. yeah, from one to three. Now, what he's doing, we have, we've also partnered with um, Justice Point, and they're set up there, you know, in, in, in the location. And you know, we had about 25 veterans last time, which is, he, he thought, he, he just thought this was the greatest thing. They came in, there's no police presence at all, and um, he's able to resolve these cases, these cases that people have, victims have, and it stops them from trying to look for a job. And it really does. It stops them from a lot of things. And he um, resolves them, either through community service or reduction of fines. I'm not going to get into what he actually does. That's kind of his business. So it's been, it, that, that's, that's been a really great thing. We also have the legal clinic that we're starting back up um, 
the first Thursday of the month, which is coming up 15th, will be the first Thursday. And every Thursday, every first Thursday of the month, we'll be doing um, the legal clinic from 5 to 6.30. So we have attorneys coming in. J.C. Uh, Moore is a part of that. He started that whole program over Dry Hook. So we'll be doing that right now. And eventually, we'll get back to the first and third Thursday. But right now, we're just on the first Thursday. Uh, the other thing, real quick, real quick, the other thing is right here. I've got this, um, I've been working with Vet Court over the years, downtown. We're not really involved right now with Vet Court, uh, Dry Hoochie, but I know from all the experience I have there, something came to my head. Okay, what kind of route this year we're gonna start? Well, in a sense, I own some of this too, so I'm gonna publicly say it because it helps me and it helps somebody else too. I've never been charged with spouse or abuse or anything like that. I just never been charged with it. Wouldn't I ever did it? I just never been charged with it, you know? So I'm gonna say that. But then I'm gonna say this right here, that I started thinking about all, a lot of veterans coming through vet court in the last years that I've been here. Some of that has to do with a lot of the vets, the domestic do yeah. uh, violence shit. You know what I mean? Huge problem. So I, yeah, so I said, you know what? I'm talking to Zeno about this and I'm gonna be talking to him again. We're gonna start a group, and I don't know what we're gonna call it, but it's you know I said veterans against against domestic violence, and it's gonna be a safe place where we can really begin to drill down on why and this whole peel the onion back thing about why me included. See, you, you got you got to put yourself out there. Really, yeah, I have called some names, and I I really put your hands on too many people, but I have you know been kind of upset in my past life about things. And we need to start examining why we're doing that and what's you know what we can do to stop and to start respecting. And that's on both sides. I'm saying that there are female veterans that have the same issue, more prevalent, more prevalent with veteran males, but we need to start. That's my next agenda here, Drive. Wow, that, that's wonderful. I, I one of the other topics that we haven't really covered too well, but you're reflecting on that now, Otis, and that would be the veterans' responsibility in observing or taking care of the, the health care of the family that he's with. His, yeah. I mean, that, that's vastly important. We always focus on the veteran, but typically behind every veteran, there's a family. And the veteran, yeah. to some extent, has to take responsibility in some way. And, and your programs will certainly help them with that. Even if we're having issues, <clears throat> we can't take those issues out on the people at home. We've really got to let those people know that, okay, yes, I have an issue, but I'm going to take care of it at the VA or I'm going somewhere, Aurora, whatever it is, to take care of these issues just to give them peace of mind because there aren't that many resources. And a lot of times family members don't know where to go to get uh, uh, help for the issues they're suffering with their veteran. And, and Dry Hooch would offer some, at least some guidance with that, wouldn't they? Yeah, we used to have a fabulous lady out of Waukesha. We had an office of Waukesha, uh, Ruth, Miss Ruth. She was our, our family resource center person, right? Hopefully we'll get back to that again. You know, hopefully toward the end of this year or toward, or toward July, we'll start doing some, um, some real family initiatives. In fact, I was talking to Brian Michaels just yesterday from MHA, great partner with us, MHA, Ms. Martinez over there. He was just telling me about um, our involvement, Drouch's involvement in um, his suicide prevention um, project that he's working on now where we're going to have veterans, we're actually going to have veterans coming in and talking with, um, talking with survivors, veterans that have committed suicide, like wow. family members. Yeah. That's going to be deep. But I, I said, I want, I said, I know, I said, well, I said, Ryan, that, that, I'm, I'm like, that's my wheelhouse. Well, Otis, I'm glad you feel that way because I'm hoping we can get you to do, be, be, be one of those peers. Wow, no absolutely. Question. Yeah. And, and, and again, going back earlier in our conversation, taking these initiatives, starting these programs about the family, about uh, spousal abuse or, or abuse in the home, about the yeah. suicide, starting this, this helps veterans get involved, as we did with the Warrior Partnership at the Medical College of Wisconsin, to participate in improving the health care for not just for veterans, but for their families. And it's yeah. that power that you have to, to uh, put together with the, the, the health care professionals that's going to make this a much more successful, uh, give us a much more successful result than actually having effect on, on helping the veterans yeah. and their families. I, I, I wish we could talk to you again, but as you know, we talked about this before, we're going to have you back for another session. Tell us in, in a minute or less, if you could go back 
what's something you would have done differently to get to where you are now sooner to avoid some of the, the things that you you experienced in 30 years? Is there, a, is there a tidbit of hope that you could go to somebody listening who's experienced that and say, don't wait 30 years to do this? What would, yeah, you, what would, years, you, what yeah. would you tell them? Give them some hope. I would say if you're getting out of the military, right? See, so when I so when I get a brain lock like this or something like an issue like this, I have to go to the reason that I'm here. And everybody, every everybody goes around this push to say the same thing, but I'm just going to say it up front. Plug in. Not only does it meet your the expectations of your question, but plug into your spirituality. Plug into you know the things that you know from being raised here in any any town in America, any city in America. Um, if you didn't get it from your household, you got it from the school, you got it from the environment, your spirituality. That's where that's where it lies at. That's where all this stuff lies in your spirituality. I agree with you. you. That's, that's, that's where you're going to get so, so if I were to share three words with you, forgiveness, hope, love, are, are they powerful? Oh, no question. Forgiveness being like, really? You know, how can you... <laughs> <laughs> How can you expect to be forgiven if you're not going to forgive? Yeah, Even your, really. yeah. you know, yeah, and stop you know, being, stop being world. the judge. Yeah, stop the yeah, judgmental yeah. crap. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I have to bring this up for for the audience. We are doing this recording over Zoom. At the very beginning, uh, Otis mentioned that he was with a friend, and in the picture that was taken of them, there was a flag of the um, the rebel flag. What do they call that? The um, Confederate flag. The Confederate flag in the background. <clears throat> I've been watching through with both of our videos on on this uh, recording, and uh, the flag over the back of your shoulder is what flag, Otis? It's the American flag. Oh, <laughs> Good know, for you. Oh, this is this is for another whole day. No, if, it, if it's a quick, you know, I'm not holding you right to well, 60 minutes. Right the American flag, right? And this is where. This is where there shouldn't be, you know, Morgan Freeman said it, and I'll say it too. We're getting to a place, and I believe we should get here, where there is no black, uh, what do you call it, this Black American Month, Black? Oh, Black History Month. Black History Month. Yeah, I mean, you don't have a Spanish History Month. Yeah. You got an Asian History Month, <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm just saying, you know, it's, it's, it's in Asians and Spanish folks in this country have contributed a great deal, or Native American History Month. You know, at some point, we're going to have to understand that we're all just uh, Americans. But I think we're getting there. I, I think this is part of the process to get there. I, I mean, I, yeah. I would agree with you to a certain extent, uh, yeah. but I think I think it's important. Uh, it's all part of the important thing. Uh, the one that I get, uh, you know, I spoke with you. I, I lived in Africa for a long time, and Nelson Mandela said something that has always stuck with me. At least it's attributed to him and other people, and that's uh, the one that gets me is holding on to anger is like drinking poison and hoping it kills your enemy. Uh, and right. that, that's always stuck with me. But Otis, I want to thank you. Thank you so much for, for being a guest. We will have you back. Uh, Dry Hooch is on National Avenue across the street from the VA Hospital in Milwaukee on National Avenue. So about 5,000 uh, West National Avenue. It's also on Brady Street on the east side of Milwaukee. Um, right. So visit there. Uh, you'll be in the phone book. There's coffee there. You're open. It's open. Just walk in and start talking to somebody. So I thank you again. <clears throat> and thank you uh, to the audience today for, for joining us. Uh, your comments are always welcome and very important to us. So you just go to the Orban Foundation for Veterans.org um, and you will find some other resources. They're very important resources for veterans. The most important resource there we have is the Veterans Crisis Line. Excuse me, that number is 1-800-273-8255 and then press 1. Or you can text CHAT to 838255. And our podcast is brought to you in part by a grant from the uh, Charles Kubli Foundation. And check out their uh, dedication to improving the lives of people affected by depression. And we're very honored that they would help us out. And their, their website is www.charlesekublyfoundation.org. Thanks to our sound engineers, uh, Minnie, Carrie, and Dan. And join us again next time for your favorite podcast from your favorite podcast app uh, or on Facebook or our website, again, Orban Foundation for Veterans. For Aaron and Bob, I am Mike Orban. Remember, this is educational, not stigmatizing.
thank you for listening to the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Your feedback is welcomed and encouraged. You'll find contact information on our webpage, OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. While you're there, please consider making a contribution. Donations help us continue to bring greater hope, understanding, and resolution on issues of civilian readjustment for all military veterans and families. Anyone who donates to the podcast will receive a free copy of the book, Sold Out, Conquering the Experiences of War, by Michael Orban. On behalf of Michael Orban, Bob Bach, and Aaron Schraufnagel, thanks for joining us, and please tune in again.